On this episode of The London Lyceum, we talk with Parker Setacase about the authorial analogy for the problem of evil. So we consider topics like just what is the authorial analogy? What about different versions of language, such as analogy, univocity, and equivocity? Do these things play into this discussion? What types of authorial analogy are really there? And does it actually help us to resolve the problem of evil at all? Are there costs associated with it? And what about the problem of gratuitous evil or the problem of epistemic self-defeat as it relates to this and much, much more? And as always, uh, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's devoted to thinking, and we want to think in ways that embody a particular set of virtues, hopefully most of the time, and that is charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And today, I'm looking forward to introducing you all uh, to a guest of our, uh, a new friend, uh, Parker Setacase. And he's got a podcast that is called Parker's Pensies, right? And it's you've got a YouTube channel too, I think. Okay, so number one, before you even get into all this stuff, before you hear him, I'll tell you, go check it out. He's got some really awesome uh, guests on there, some similar guests to us, but he's also got some really high-powered, um, serious philosophers on there uh, that I'm like, wow. I, can't believe you got him to to join your show. That's pretty awesome. So really unique, interesting stuff going on there. In a lot of ways, very similar to what we do. So I think that's that's awesome to do more of that. And we're going to talk today, though, not totally about just his show. He can talk about that in a second. But we want to talk about uh, a recent thesis he just defended. And you were this was under Kevin Van Hooser, correct? That's right. And John Feinberg. Yeah. Okay. And the, the uh, let me get this title right. I've got it up on my computer. Um, Maybe I do. Here it is. My, contending with the divine writer's block. Van Hooser's Analogia. Man, you, all you guys with all these Latin <laughs> words that I can't pronounce. Analogia Autoris, yeah. There you go. It makes me look dumb. And the problem of authoring <laughs> evil. The main idea, I, I think I think this is a great topic. And one, I, I mean, I'm a Calvinist. So naturally, this is a, an analogy that has played it a substantial influence on just my own thinking and trying to understand the God evil problem. So I think this is really interesting and really fun. And we're going to talk about that as we get into the episode. Before we do that, Parker, just tell us a little bit about yourself for those who don't know. Tell us briefly, like how long you've been podcasting, what's going on there, and then why particularly study and research this topic. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, and thanks again for being on the show. Love, love you guys. Love what you're doing uh, as well. So it's really fun to be on here. So I, uh, I work for a, a campus ministry called Athletes in Action. It's a crew ministry. And um, I meet up with college athletes. I wrestled myself in, in college. I wrestled. Uh, I was a wrestler. I didn't wrestle myself, but I do that still <laughs> um, in college. And, and so I, I work with college athletes and came to seminary where my wife uh, came here to TED's. My wife is uh, an athletic trainer here. So I got free tuition. So that was insane. So I got two degrees because why not? That's awesome. Free tuition. So I did theological studies and systematic theology. And uh, like you you said, I wrote my master's thesis under Kevin Van Hooser. He's my first reader. And then John Feinberg was my second. And the two just two giants, two legends in uh, uh, Calvinist circles and theological circles in general, even just, just two legends. So that was really fun working with them. 
And, um, and then I started this podcast in August and I've been meaning to do it for a while. I plan to do it after I graduate, but COVID and everything, everyone's starting podcasts. So why not jump in? Um, I have a lot of really fun friends, a lot of really smart friends. God just has brought all these people into my life and they mentor me, disciple me, all this stuff. I have amazing conversations with them. And I, I always thought for the last four years, I should record these. Other people will be blessed by these. These are awesome conversations just because I have so many cool friends. So that's basically what I, what I started doing. I do some teaching here and there from stuff I've been reading, but, um, so that's, that's the podcast, um, on YouTube. I do a little bit extra stuff with Jordan Peterson type stuff. Um, a little bit of apologetics kind of stuff, but yeah, I just, I love, uh, thinking about cool stuff and it's a shame that Jordan Peterson's so famous and Kevin Van Hooser is not. <laughs> that's that's the goal of my podcast. Let's make Kevin Van Hooser as popular as, as Jordan Peterson. That's awesome. I I love Kevin Van. He's got a lot of just really 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 awesome stuff, and I, he probably is underrated. Yeah. Um, when I think now, those who are familiar with him probably have a, a high esteem for him, mm-hmm. but he's underrated because a lot of people don't know him. I guess. Right. Yeah. Sort of that. I guess you can be the Kevin Van Hooser popularizer alongside Derek. Uh, that's right. Rich Maui, I can't, yeah, Rich Derek, Maui. if you ever listen to this podcast, which you probably don't, I am sorry. Um, but by the way, for those who are listening, you don't see it, but Parker has this just amazing mustache <laughs> that is Appreciate unbeatable. That. So if anything, I, I'm intimidated by the hmm. impressive hmm. stature of it. That's so awesome. so what what first got you spark, uh, sparked your interest in, in what you wrote the thesis on? Was there something that I... I I know I heard you talk to Gavin Ortland about this a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was kind of an interesting backstory on kind of how long you've been wrestling with this and, and what, what sparked your interest. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, for sure. So um, gr- growing up, you know, my, my dad uh, loves the Lord and taught us to love the Lord and would read the Bible with us. And he read us about uh, Moses and Pharaoh, you know, and got to this part where God is far, uh, hardening Pharaoh's heart. And I was like, Dad, what is the deal with that? It's, you know, twice it said... Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then it seemed like, the, I believe it was the third time God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I was just like, dad, that's, that's not fair. That's not right. I don't understand that. And my dad goes, uh, you know, God's just giving Pharaoh more of what he, what he wanted. It's like, no, it doesn't seem like this. It seemed like he wanted to relent and God hardened his heart to make it keep going, to, to give more curses uh, and plagues. And so the answer was just not good. Eventually coming full circle, I think that was probably uh, the right answer, but <laughs> For for a seven year old, you know it, that wasn't enough, and I was sitting in my closet the rest of the day, just scared of God. Like, could God harden my heart? Then I'm screwed, you know. Then I became a Calvinist in college, <laughs> and I thought, how do I deal with this? How do I deal with the fact that God is hardening hearts? How can God be sovereign? I'm a Calvinist. I think the Bible says. Uh, I think the Bible forces me to be a Calvinist. How is it that He's the author of the world, but He's not author of sin and evil? So I came to seminary. And I wanted to write with, uh, I love Van Hoos. You just wanted to get close to him and, and steal all the knowledge from him. And uh, I wanted to write on God and time, God's relation to time. I really want to get real philosophical. And he said, you know, if you do this, they're going to all ask you, what about evil? What about evil? What about evil? So you need to write it on evil. So he made me write it on evil instead of God and time. And I'm really glad that he did. So I ended up kind of producing a theodicy for his book, um, Remythologizing Theology. And it turns out a lot of his friends had been asking him for a a theodicy for a while. So I, I was glad to play a part in that. Fill the gap, man. Is he going <laughs> to, he needs to push it so you can get it published or something, right? I know it. I know it. Yeah. I'm trying to, 
if he's listening, I hope he listens to this too. He's got to come on podcast. Everyone pressure him. Uh, we we got to get him on. Yeah, he's he's. Has uh, he never been on a podcast? Not, he he hasn't been on my podcast, and that's a shame because I spent a whole year <laughs> working on his stuff. Man, come on over, Van Hoos. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. Well, may, maybe I'll take Brandon's role here. Can we start with just a basic definition of what it the authorial analogy really is? Mm-hmm and how that potentially relates to things like analogy, university, um, equivocal language, those types of things. Yeah, for sure. So so an authorial analogy sounds, it may sound kind of tricky, but it's, it's looking at God as uh, the author of the world. It's an analogy between God and an author. And so just as Tolkien authored uh, uh, Middle Earth, so God authored Earth. Uh, not in the exact way. So it's not, it's not univocal. God is not in Starbucks, one level of reality above writing, you know, this and that and this and that. But, um, and, and it's not equivocal. Uh, we're not talking about two completely different things, but in making an anal- drawing an analogy between God and an author, we're exercising analogical predication. We're saying that these two things are similar, but there's also dissimilarity in there. It's, and an, an, an analogy, especially an analogy like this, is um, I, I make a case in, in chapter one that it's a strong explanatory analogy, and there's all different types of analogies going on. But a strong analogy is one that has a lot of similarities between the two things being uh, described, and there's not a significant a number of disanalogy between the two. So it's, it's strong. A weak one would have maybe a couple uh, similarities, but a lot of dissimilarities. So it's a strong uh, analogy, and it's an explanatory analogy because it's not just describing, it's not just flowery language, it's actually doing some work. So it's taking something that you know more about and using that to explain something you know less about. And so God, we know a lot about authors. We're humans. We know human authors. We don't know as much about how God created the world or, you know, we, we know some from scripture, but we know more about a human author creating a, a world than God, the author, creating ex nihilo. And so it's a strong explanatory analogy for the God-world relation. How does God relate to the world? Well, uh, in a similar, in an analogical fashion to an author relating to their novel. So, yeah, that's that's the uh, so it, it, analogy it, in general. It's not saying it's exactly like this in every respect, right. mm-hmm. but this is a ha- helpful vantage point to understanding the relationship of, of God to evil, which maybe do you want to sketch out? I mean, just briefly the problem of evil a little bit more robustly than just the Pharaoh story. Yeah. Um, I think Pharaoh, I mean, for me, at least, I think it's odd, odd that you mentioned that that was kind of one of the things that really kicked it off for you. That was really one of the things that I think puzzled me at probably a similar age too, Mm. was just that story. It it does, it is confusing and challenging uh, initially when you're encountering that for the first time to be like, uh, wait a second, that seems to go against my intuitions about, about things. So maybe just sketch broad, more broadly what the problem of evil is. Yeah. Well, and, and it's great. So, well, firstly, this, this authorial analogy, um, God is like an author. It does a lot of, con- it, it can do a lot of conceptual heavy lifting in, in systematic theology, you know, God's relation to time, uh, you know, so an, an author is writing a story and, um, they get up to go use the bathroom or get some coffee. And inside the story, the characters aren't like, ah, you know, frozen. They're not 
there there's two different levels of time going on and yeah it's it's an analogy it's analogous to our time but um it's how it's a helpful conceptual tool for thinking about god and time uh thinking about the incarnation as an author writing himself into the story as the main character so there's a lot of there's a lot of different directions you can go with this but as you just brought up about the problem of evil if this analogy makes God the author of sin and evil in like a morally objectionable way, then we shouldn't use this analogy at all. Maybe we should forbid it in our evangelical seminaries. Hey, yeah, you can go, you can use it for some heavy lifting, but it's making God the author of evil. So don't do that. So um, the, yeah, the, the problem of evil is why, why is there evil in the world at all? And if God is this author, then did he not write evil into the story? Well, what are you saying? Like, he could have just written a different story without evil in it. So what's the deal, God? Like, why would you do that? And so I'm, I'm a Calvinist, as, as you said, Jordan, yourself. Um, uh, Brandon, are you a Calvinist as well? Yeah. yeah. Cool. Right. More of a Calvinist all... than Jordan, so it's okay. All right. We can always let oh, it Don't down. even. Don't even. That's not true at all. <laughs> well, so um, it's it's a very very strong sense of meticulous providence and God's literally authoring things. So how is it that how can we get this analogy off the hook? I want to do all the conceptual hip, uh, heavy lifting, but I don't want to say God is responsible for evil. And it yeah. seems like this might ex- uh, to to quote you know Guillaume Bignon's work, it might excuse sinners and blame God. I know in your thesis, you kind of walk through a number of different uh, folks who have used this authorial analogy in their work. Um, maybe sketch out a few of those, um, the ones that, that you find most interesting. And then I know you you eventually land on Kevin Van Hoosers and you you kind of drill a little bit deeper on that one. But And also you talk about how earlier in church history, it's not so much an, an authorial analogy, but um, there are theologians like you know Calvin and Bonaventure and Origen. Uh, maybe Augustine, who who talk about um, nature uh, as a book, um, and and that seems to me to be very similar to this authorial analogy, but I guess a little bit different. So maybe show us the seeds that are there in the earlier church period, and then maybe some of these um, later figures and thinkers who have actually teased out a more detailed authorial analogy for us. Yeah, so uh, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Gavin Ortland, uses this in his book, uh, Retrieving uh, Evangelical Retrieval for. Th- Something like that. Retrieval. You, you guys know the book. Uh, um, he uses yeah. this as a tool for talking about the extra Calvinisticum. So, um, which, say what you will about the word, but uh, it's just the fact that, that Christ still has a divine nature outside of of his human nature. And he's still upholding the world, um, even though he's on the cross. And so, I think it's, it's a fantastic analogy for that, um, that it, it's... If you think about like C.S. Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote himself into the great divorce and he's a character in there interacting with the characters. And yet he's still C.S. Lewis upholding everything. The characters within the story don't know it, but the guy that they're interacting with C.S. Lewis in there is actually upholding the whole universe that and and their whole existence. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a really helpful tool there. Uh, It's just you go one step further in the biblical story, the author had uh, forewarned of his coming. He said, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, come. And then he's there and he says, I'm the author of the story. You know, I, I am God. So um, I think it's a really helpful tool there. Uh, C.S. Lewis himself uses this in uh, relation to God and time. So he does that one as well. He also does this uh, in looking for God in, a, in an essay. After the Russians went up into space, 
they said, I see no God here. And Lewis is like, well, what are you talking about? That's like looking for uh, Shakespeare and Hamlet. It's not that kind of thing. And so uh, there's there's been a lot of, of uh, Dor- Dorothy Sayers uses it as well. Um, a lot of a lot of people, John Frame uses it. Uh, famously, Grudem uses it in his systematic theology. So it, it's popped up a lot in, in modern times. But then the question is, why is this a novelty at all? Um, and, and of course, Van Hooser uses it in remythologizing theology. But if this is such a good tool for theology, why isn't it just redundant? Why, why would a thesis be interesting at all about this? And so uh, here I, I borrow from um, Christian uh, Bauerschmidt, Frederick Christian Bauerschmidt. Um, and he, he wrote a great article about this. And he says, well, you know, the, the modern novel wasn't around back then. Like in early church history, they didn't have novels. And so the idea of the author being a creative genius was not conceptually a thing yet. And so it, it took the rise of the modern novel and then the rise of the author as genius in order to develop a motif that would help us uh, understand God as a creative genius author. And so while the authorial analogy for the God-world relation isn't uh, explicit throughout church history, the idea of God being the author of the world certainly is. And that's the guys that you quoted. You find it all over the place. You find the two books, uh, you know, God's two books, his book of nature, book of scripture. Uh, you, you find all all over the place, theologians saying God is the author of reality. And so it's a really natural fit. And now that we have this conceptual idea of uh, a creative genius, it's a it's totally natural fit. God's the author of the world. Or the, the world is, uh, the book of nature was written by the author of, of nature. And so, yeah, it just took some time to, to get to the modern era where we had this idea of creative genius. That's awesome. So as you're talking about this, are, are there various ways to really cash out this authorial analogy that would say, yeah, there are three distinctive classifications of people using this analogy in distinct ways, or is it just more of a broad umbrella category where everybody kind of tweaks it to their own uh, usage? Yeah, Jordan, I think it's it's probably the second one uh, that it's kind of just been seen as a tool in theology. Hey, it's kind of just something that can help you think about that. Um, that I think that's probably how John frames using it in Grudem when they're thinking about concursus. They're saying, you know, how is it that God, yeah, how, how can he uh, use concursus at all in, in providence as a, a subcategory of providence? How is it? Oh, like an author. And it seems like, you know, Hugh McCann uh, is doing that a little bit as well. And it's just a tool. But someone who's not doing that is Kevin Van Hooser. And he's in remythologizing theology, he expands it. And I think that's why his model is actually the best. Well, a lot of reasons I think his is the best. But he's saying because of his uh, theodramatic motif, this is everything. Like this is a, a actual full-blown way to view God in the world, not just for viewing one particular doctrine. And I, mm-hmm. I think he's right. And I want to advance that and advance that and advance that. And um so yeah, you people can use it. I think Arminians can use it. C.S. Lewis, whatever he was, he's probably an Arminian, right? Um, he he uses it. Dorothy Sayers, a Catholic, she uses it. Um, but I think it fits most naturally in uh, Calvinistic uh, systematic theology, and certainly as a strong explanatory analogy, it's a it's a Calvinistic analogy. Have you engaged any at all with James Anderson's uh, chapter? 
Calvinism and the first sin. It's in Calvinism and the problem of evil. Yeah. Um, I, honestly, I've just, I wrote a paper a long time ago on God and evil, and I don't remember much mm. of anything from it. So I'm just looking through it now. And I know, I guess I noted his authorial model of providence. So does mm-hmm. that contrast uh, with Van Hooser to a significant I, I, extent? I actually, so I use, I love James Anderson. Any chance I get to talk about him, he is my favorite. I love <laughs> him so much. Um, he's he's a big part of the reason I wanted to do the authorial analogy because I, I saw it in frame and then I read his chapter when that book came out, probably 2016. And I thought, yes, he's got it. He's got it. So his alpha versus beta causation is really, really helpful. Uh, God, God has alpha causation outside the story and then beta causation uh, intranarratively is a word that I think he probably coined within the story. There's, there are different causes, beta causes, but at step back outside the story and God's still writing that's alpha causation, but it's on a different plane of existence. So I actually use that to bolster Van Hooser's model. I do think that if you just take um, Anderson's model and push it too hard, uh, if he doesn't have the right sense of authorship, I think it might collapse. And so that's hmm. that, Van Hooser and Anderson need to work together. And I, I do that in my head. I put them together in my thesis as well, because <laughs> I think they both sharpen each other, but alone, maybe both of them might fall. Just as a little bit of a side note, I, I noticed you uh, you quoted Greg Welty a, a little bit towards the end of the mm-hmm. of the thesis. Were you able to chat with him about this at all? Like exchange any emails with him and, and pick his brain on all this? Yeah, I did. I, I love so Anderson and Welty are my guys, and they yeah, uh, I, I I love them so much. I'm I'm at Ted's because of them. They I wanted to go into philosophy right mm-hmm. away, and both of them said go individually. They both said go study the languages. Uh, we have enough philosophers who don't know theology. Yeah. Go learn theology and then go into philosophy. So I'm here because of them. But yeah, Welty emailed me and and gave me a lot of help with uh, some Swinburne quotes, actually. He did his, yeah. his dissertation under Swinburne. Mm-hmm. And and so when it came to the self-defeat uh, in in the thesis, when I was treating self-defeat, he sent me some some good Swinburne stuff, which was really fun. Um, and then, yeah, he wrote the, the, his book, Why Why Is There Evil in the World? And so much of it. Yeah. And we, we talked a little bit about that, but he was actually even more helpful with the self-defeat part. Nice. I, Brandon may not mention it, but I think both me and him are wealthy fanboys. Awesome. Yeah, so, we are. <laughs> he's the man. He, he he's actually, the best. He, he directed my THM thesis. Okay. So that's huge. Um, I, I'm a big wealthy fan. I think he's awesome. Mm-hmm. And I've learned a ton from him and credit a lot of my just understanding a lot of stuff to him. So huge thanks on that front. Now, with the authorial model, do you, do you think it really at bottom can help resolve or at least ease some of the problem problem of evil because i can imagine somebody who looks at it and says yeah you can come up with this you know elaborate scenario where possibly god is potentially like this but Mm -hmm. there seems to be almost so many dissimilarities or maybe they just don't buy the analogy to begin with for various reasons and in a way, it all in a way it almost seems to at at first on a first read like it almost increases the stakes and it and yeah. it makes the problem of evil that much more difficult right. because yeah. now now you're not even dealing with the compatibility of God's existence and evil's existence. You're now you're putting God at the end of the pen mm-hmm. and saying that you know He's written this into the story. So it it makes it on the surface that much more difficult. 
and you deal with a number of objections. Um, so maybe maybe we could walk through some of the objections. I don't know um, yeah. that you deal with in the thesis. I mean, I saw and just to add on this, I saw an interesting thread by a, a friend, Joel Chop, on Twitter recently. And whenever you listen to this, I have no idea how old it'll be by then. It was in May of 2021, so you may have to dig. But he, he I think, touches on some of these things where I think John Piper uh, kind of gets at the idea of like, there's no good word for this, whether it's author or causes or ordains or governs or decrees, any of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to get misunderstanding in some way. So I don't know if that plays into the challenges here. It's just... Yeah. No, th- these are all awesome points. I th- um. I'm excited that it apparently exacerbates the problem of evil because I think it helps motivate the authorial analogy. So I'm defending, my whole goal was to defend Van Hooser's authorial analogy by showing its answer to the problem of evil. Not only why is there evil at all, but then also applying it specifically to different problems of evil. And this is something that that Feinberg brought out. I took a whole class by Feinberg here um, called The Problem of Evil and his or maybe his problems because his whole work, his whole dissertation was there are problems of evil. There's lots of different ones and they applied to different people based on their theology, based on their ethics. And so I wanted to cash that out and say, look, it, it answers the why. And then it it also uh, there are particular problems of evil that will be raised for a Calvinist that are going to be different than an Arminian. And so I wanted to apply those to the authorial analogy and I wanted to follow my my mentor here and in, in who's and make some fun analogy or some fun uh, language so as they apply to the authorial analogy it's the absentee author it's uh, authorial logaria saying too much evil you know those these kind of things so uh all that to say yes i think i think it is an answer to the problem of evil i don't think it's just a possible this or that i think it genuinely does and i understand how arrogant that sounds. I hope it's not arrogant. I, it's not my thing. So, you know, uh, I can just push it off on Van Hoos, but I think that we literally do live in a theodrama, like, like a novel. I, I don't think that this is just a helpful way of, of thinking. I think that it is the actual way. And why do I think that? Well, scripture ta- Psalm uh, 33, six, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, their host for he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, right? And uh, John 1, you know, by by his word, he created everything. So authors create worlds with pen and paper using their speech acts. God created this world with uh, uh, time and space in his speech acts. And so, yeah, I straight up think that we do live in in a theodram- theodramatic novel. Let's well let's let's drill down a little deeper on some of these specific objections. So like mm-hmm. let's let's talk about like gratuitous evil. So yeah. um, how how do you deal with that with that objection? If somebody says you know um, I understand what you're getting at, but how how do you get around um, evil that that is seemingly gratuitous and and may not have any any purpose? Yeah. So um, for for this it's um it's a skeptical theist answer for for those who know what that means, and it's it fits so naturally with the authorial analogy. So. Yeah, gratuitous evil is you know it's it's purposeless evil. There's a, a William Rowe. We'll talk about a, a deer in the woods and it, uh, a tree struck by lightning and catch on fire, falls on the deer, suffering. No one even knows about it. What's the point of this? That's just gratuitous. It doesn't need to be in the story. And so, like, what? That's a plot problem for the authorial analogy. There's just meaningless, senseless evil. Okay, in order to know that, you have to put yourself in the place of the author. 
How do you know the full plot? How do you know whether or not that deer had some kind of deer disease that was going to spread to every other deer? Well, then why do you have to suffer? Well, look, I don't know. I'm, I don't have the uh, position of the author in order to say that. I'd have to be the author in order to tell you what the author's reason is for it. But likewise, you'd have to be the author to say, this is a genuine plot problem. This does not fit in the plot at all. And so it's skeptical. It's a skeptical theist answer, but it's using Van Hooser's principle of outsideness, which he uses to represent uh, the transcendence and imminence. An author who wrote himself into the story is imminent in the story. And he's also transcendent from the story. It's C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce being imminent in the story as the main character as well as being the author of the story with uh, upholding the the whole universe by the word of his mouth in an analogical sense. Right. Of course. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm partial to skeptical theist answers to the problem of evil. Like why is there evil, et cetera, though that's not the case for everyone. I, mm -hmm. I do see, I mean, crazy that it seems like there's a lot of, a lot of dissertations and stuff on skeptical theism being not a good solution. So, mm -hmm. Do you have any answers just to generally skeptical theists, uh, skeptical theism, I mean, uh, why it's not a bad answer to the problem of evil? Yeah. So <clears throat> it depends. This is something that Feinberg would bring up. It depends on if uh, you are re replying to a, if you're defending or if you're contending. So I think apologetics rightfully should be brought up, uh, split into defending, contending, commending for the faith. So you're defending the faith when someone brings an objection to you. You're contending for the faith when you go out on the offensive and engage in polemics in the true sense, not the Christian sense where we all fight each other, but polemics in we're, we're battling of worldviews. And then commending uh, is giving positive evidence uh, for the Christian worldview. And so if you're defending, I think it's fantastic. Someone comes to you and says, hey, there's evil in the world. There's gratuitous evil in the world. And if there were a God, then there wouldn't be gratuitous evil. And you go, hey, look, you're, you're attacking me in my worldview. Here's what I'm, here's my answer that in order to, I think God has a morally sufficient reason for the evil that he allows in order to disprove that you would have to be God in order to say, there's no reason you think about like chaos theory and the butterfly effect. How, how, how could you know everything in order to say there's no logical good reason? Like, dude, that's insane. That's insane to even think like that. Mm -hmm. I am 100% sure that there's no good justifying reason now or in the past or in the future, which could justify this instance of evil. And so mm -hmm. it's like, no, dude, this is my worldview. I get to answer from my worldview. Now, it might be different if you're going on the attack and you're you know, trying to press someone else. And so um, it, 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 it could depend on the, if you're looking at a logical problem of evil or an evidential problem of evil, and there's all sorts of stuff like that. But in defending the authorial analogy, I'm defending it from that attack against it as a system. And yeah. that's that I dealt with with those three problems at the end just to kind of show that it can defend against these. But the, the main the main purpose was the, the self-defeat, uh, mm -hmm. the self-defeat argument and uh, manipulation argument it makes God a manipulator. Yeah. And yeah, and let's us, let's. Yeah. Yeah, let's yeah. talk about the manipulation piece because you know this is something that any any divine determinist, um, someone who holds to compatibilism, is going to have to answer. So, so on this on this analogy, God is writing the story, and now there's an individual in the story who's going to um, 
do any number of different things. And some of those things are going to be evil. Now, what do you say to the person who says, well, um, that person can't be morally responsible because they only did what they did because um, God either coerced them into doing that or Mm -hmm. um, it ultimately falls back on him so they can't be responsible. Yeah. And and so uh, I wanted to like you guys said, this, this seems like it could exacerbate the problem of evil. And I, I wanted to follow in like a Plantingian kind of uh, step in, in motivating this problem even more. I want to soup it up and make it harder. So I used uh, another friend of mine, Jim Slagle. He's the man. He's awesome. He's been on the podcast a couple of times. He has, uh, he's formulated something called the epistemological skyhook. And it's basically a catch-all <laughs> category for the uh, argument from reason. You guys are laughing. You guys, you guys. I just, I'm or? thinking about Kareem. Like, yeah. Basketball, I like when I, I don't know. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, okay. So the, the epistemological skyhook is, is language he stole from Daniel, Daniel Dennett, uh, who tried to use that against the, that we don't need the whole history there, but. And, and uh, clearly Daniel Dennett has no idea who Kareem is probably, <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> he might, I don't know. Uh, but, but so. Yeah, he might. I don't know. Uh, he he was just making this distinction between cranes and skyhooks. So a crane is uh, he he's a naturalist. He wants to build everything from the ground up, from from nature up. And he said all these other folks. He was actually going against other naturalists who have a really high regard for mind. And he says it's a skyhook. It's coming down from the sky. It's not grounded in anything. And so it's spooky, right? And so um, all that say, uh, Slagle grabbed this and brought together all these different arguments from reason from C.S. Lewis and, and, and all these giants uh, in, in philosophy. And he applies that against uh, determinism and naturalism. And so, yeah, planning a kind of fits in there as well, but he does have this little section against theological determinism and that's where it applies to the authorial analogy. And so he says that if um, in order for our belief to be to be justified, it's got to have like at least three things. It's got to have an explanation. Okay, that's fine. Well, it's got to have a good explanation. It can't just be out of nowhere. Uh, otherwise, you don't you're not justified, right? So Gettier makes this this point a lot. And then it has to be your uh, it has to be your explanation. And he says explanation instead of reason, so we can catch the externalist and the internalist as well. And so it seems like when you apply that to the authorial analogy. I have all these beliefs. That's okay. That's fine. God wrote me with these beliefs, but it seems like they're his. It doesn't seem like they're mine. The explanation for my belief is external to me. Um, and in, in such a way that it, not talking about internalism, externalism, it's just, it's not mine. It's his, it's the author of the stories. And so that seems like any of my attitude, any of my pro attitudes, any uh, propositional attitudes I have, and I act on those, that's God's fault, whether good or bad. Okay. So that's a really big deal. So using uh, something called reasons responsiveness um, from Mark Revisa and John Martin Fisher, uh, it's, it's called the whole theory is called guidance control, and it includes reasons responsiveness and mechanism ownership. So uh, they are saying you, you can be free and morally responsible, even if you're determined, because if you're determined to respond to reasons rationally, and no one's messed with the mechanism by which you come to your beliefs then you're free, even if you're determined. And so that's how I, that's what I'm using in order to defend against the problem of self-defeat. Um, uh, let's see, William and Craig and, and some others, they, they lob this against Calvinists all the time. And they say, well, do you believe that you're determined to believe in determinism? 
And it's like, oh, apparently it seems like self-defeat because you were determined to believe that, whether it's true or false. And so if that's the case, it seems like it's self-defeating. But here's where Swinburne comes in and says, no, if you're determined by reason, by rational laws to form your beliefs, then there's no self-defeat there. Okay, cool. But then you bring Slagle in, and I'm sounding like a nut job here. I'm all excited about it, but you bring Slagle <laughs> in, and Slagle makes it worse because Slagle says, "Okay, fine. You you've been determined by rational reasons, but they're still God's reasons. He's still the author. If he's still the author, then they're his reasons, not yours. His explanation, not yours. And so it seems like we still have this problem. So then, by using uh, guidance control and saying, "Look, guidance control plus Van Hooser's authorial analogy, Van Hooser." Uh, opts for divine interjection instead of divine intervention. And so God rules the world by communication, by dialoguing. And so how is it that we come to form our beliefs? Well, he He helps us form our beliefs with, like um, when he wants us to be saved. He presents us with information through other characters in the story or th- through divine intervention or interjection. And he goes through the mechanisms that he's given us. He doesn't implant ideas in us that don't make sense in our causal history. Um, And he persuades us and illuminates us instead of manipulating us, instead of, uh, yeah, implanting ideas in our head that don't make sense in our causal history. So God is a good author. If he were a poor author, then I think he probably would destroy our characters. He would just, we call that deus ex machina. And that's, that makes stories terrible when it comes out of nowhere. So that's uh the, the that's how I would respond to the self defeat, but then going to the manipulation argument, you say, well, then it seems like he's a manipulator at least. At least he's a manipulator. He's making you come to these beliefs. Okay, yeah, but how is he doing it? It's the the mechanism still matters. He's not doing it. Guillaume Bignon is so good in his analysis of mani- manipulation. There's overriding manipulation. And there's influencing. Influencing is what we kind of think about in our daily lives. If you blackmail someone, if you use emotional uh, plea to, you know, you're forcing someone to do it again. You're coercing them. But then overriding manipulation is when you put a chip in someone's brain and you go beyond their rational faculties. So God doesn't do that. God goes through our rational faculties, through divine interjection, through his word, and through um, the the alpha and beta causation, going back to Anderson, in order to establish our characters and our, our beliefs. So I just, that's a mouthful. Holy cow. So the, the question for me, when it comes to this, I guess, analogy, which I've found typically beneficial, Mm -hmm. I think I've used it. And I think it probably is the closest one for me. I wonder, though, does it make evil in some way almost necessary to a good plot? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Does that make sense? There's times, there's times when that actually appeals to me to some degree because any good story that I watch on TV or any good, you know, movie that I watch, there's always this, this arc of this plot, you know, and that's what makes a good plot. So I I almost want to say, well, yeah, it seems like that would want to be there, but then that causes all sorts of conflicts with, well, if God is holy, good and holy, powerful and all these things, is that conflict with those, Mm -hmm. I guess, divine attributes type of thing. So, all that to say, do, does the author analogy end up making evil a necessary part of the plot to make oh, a good story? Jordan, I'm so glad you asked that, man. I'm so glad. So, so that was something that I talked with Van Hooser a lot. So, um, and and Feinberg, Feinberg always emphasized we don't want a best possible world scenario because that's just a, a huge mess trying to argue for a best possible world. There's always 
one more, you know, uh, rainbow you could have added, right? There's uh, conceptually. So what I want to argue is that this is a good story that we live in. It's a good story. It's probably not the best possible story because that might be like conceptually morass. You know, that might be insane. So it's a good story. I think God could have told a different story that wouldn't have been as good if he didn't include sin and, and evil. But what's his purpose in writing the story? Well, the purpose in writing the story is the purpose for creation that God would create image bearers and reveal himself to them. And it's for his glory. It's for love. Um, and so in order to fully, more fully demonstrate himself, this is, you know, I do rely a little bit on, on planning as um, uh, O. Felix Culpa uh, defense that uh, incarnation and atonement are worth it. And so that's, if that's the point of the story, in, so ultimately it's a theodramatic greater, it's a theodramatic Christocentric greater good defense or greater glory defense, depending on how you want to say the cross is the goal of it all. And so in order to have the cross, in order to have redemption, in order to have uh, justice and mercy and all these attributes that God wanted to reveal to us, which is actually better for us, we get to know God more fully and more deeply because of that, this story needs to have evil in it. And so it's not that God had to, it's not that God couldn't have written a different story with different things, but if God wanted to write a story where he is more fully revealed in this manner, then yeah, it does necessitate evil uh, in the story, just as the Lord of the Rings wouldn't be as good of a story without, without uh, Smeagol turning into Gollum. Mm. So after, after you, you finished writing this, you know, and you, you had gotten all of this on paper, submitted it, defended it and all that. Did you have anything where you thought, man, I'd like to drill down a little further in this specific area or, or something that you would like you or someone else to kind of, you know, move the ball further down the field and, and further this conversation? Or is there anything um, specific that, that you want to um, think about more as it comes to this authorial analogy? Yeah, for sure. There's, there's so much. I, I keep every day I write down more that I want to add. I'd love to turn it into a book. And would love to pressure Van Hoos into endorsing that as well. But uh, <laughs> one thing I, I have already worked on is uh, the hiddenness argument. So I, I dealt with a little bit uh, Philip Clayton's uh, divine neglect argument. Why isn't it, if God can intervene at all, then why hasn't he? And he makes it really hard for God to intervene once without intervening always. And and Van Hooser's model is interjection instead of intervention. So if God is this author, he could have if if meticulous providence is the way that God interacts with the world, he could have absolutely intervened whenever. And so that was one that I did deal with. But then there's the divine hiddenness of jail, um, uh, Schellenberg, John Schellenberg. And that's, uh, you know, if how if God is, is all love, if God is a loving God, then there shouldn't be anyone who's open to relationship with him who don't have a relationship with him. And so I, I brought those two together in a paper I just wrote for uh, Dr. Arcadi. And his hiddenness course, and I call it the the absentee author because together it's it's why isn't he intervening and why is he hidden from people who would be open to a relationship with him? So there's there's one that I've already worked on and added. I'll I'll add that to my thesis as well. Is this open access? Did you go open access with this, or do people have to have like library access to get a copy of your thesis? Um, I haven't gone open with it yet. They they can uh, if they do have access to Trinity at all, they can find that. Um, I, okay. I, I want to, I want to work on it some more this summer, Lord willing, I'll, I'll add four or five chapters. Another one is the fact that Van Hooser calls this, uh, 
triune dialogical um, authorship, uh, dialogical polyphonic authorship. He's got some continental stuff in there. So I don't know if I'm even allowed to talk about that on the show. We're <laughs> analytic, right? Um, a large part of my project is translating uh, him into analytic uh, philosophy and theology. But um, the triune, why, why, ne- why does he necessarily need to be a triune author? And that's something I... I developed an argument for, and I think it's really fun and it's following Donald Davidson's triangulation argument. So that's another one I want to, I want to work on. So that's not going to be in, if you, if you do find access to it or, or if you email me or whatever, and you want it, it it's not there yet, but I will be adding yeah. that to it. I mean, for those listening, you've got the skyhook argument, you've got the triangulation argument. <laughs> so we've got all things Lakers, right? We've got all, you know, the Lakers offense running through the triangle. What right. else do we need? We need something on how LeBron's not a very good basketball That's player. That's right. That's right. To, to, to get the triangle. Well, he is a drama right. queen and this is a divine drama. So there you go. You guys are good. <laughs> <at this>. Look <laughs> at that. <laughs> uh, so Parker, remind me again, um, like how often do you release your podcast and those mm-hmm. types of things? What What's your target? Like what, what are your goals with that? Long term, uh, for those who like want to catch up with what you're doing and everything. Yeah, so I released two two a week now. I was doing three, and people are like, "Dude, I just can't keep up." And whatever, I I would do seven. I I just want to get people out there. Like I said, I yeah, it's a shame that there's these journal articles that are so good that no mm-hmm. one five people read. You know, there's so many journals now. So let's get it out there. So I did agree to move them down. So it's just two just two a week. And uh, the goal is to bring the top level stuff, not necessarily down the, t- the top level cookies down to the bottom shelf, but to really bring people up to the top shelf cookies. Let's go up. Yeah. Let's learn as we go. And um, just fun. You know, there's, there's Joe Rogan has a really popular podcast. I want to make a better podcast than him. You know, I just that's what I want. I want uh, to interview guests who are insanely smart and show them for how smart they are. Just, just like you guys too. I want you guys on the show. So I want to, uh, I got a, a Pokemon mentality and I got to collect them all. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Well, I can tell you, you, uh, you have a lot of fun with it. So, um, yeah. man, I, you seem really excited about, you know, everything that you're thinking about and you're doing. I mean, that's, uh, you know, I think that makes other people excited and want to learn more. So that's good, man. Yeah. And I, I know there's a good chunk of our listeners who love thinking about all these types of topics. And I know me and Brandon just can't handle doing more than one a week. Mm-hmm. So if if you've got that hunger and that appetite, well, then this is clearly another opportunity yeah. uh, to find some great content uh, that you can really enjoy, whether it's, you know, you, you listen while you drive or if you like to listen while you're out walking in the afternoon. That's when I listen to podcasts is when yeah. I take my kids on a walk uh, in the in the evenings and I'll listen to a couple of the ones that I'm interested in. But I, I think you're doing some really, really interesting work over there. So we, we commend you guys to check it out. I think the more, uh, like you said, we can bring up people instead of bringing it down. I think the church for the last, I don't know, what is it, 70 years since the 50s, uh, thought the idea was let's bring the top cookies down to the very bottom shelf. Uh, but I think we need to, to elevate people and lift them up. And I think people are hungry for that now. So, and I think that's evidenced in in the appetite for these types of episodes, these types of content, that there really is a desire for it. So I'm excited. Anytime more good stuff is coming out, I think it's a good thing, especially you're in the YouTube world. Mm-hmm. I, I don't understand the world of YouTube, <laughs> but there seems to be like really cool Catholic stuff on there. Yeah. And then there's like Gavin 
yeah. and then you, and that's like it. <laughs> that's so awesome. I think that's really neat to have a YouTube presence in there because there's, I mean, I can't tell you how many of my coworkers watch crazy YouTube stuff mm-hmm. all the time. You know, when they want to talk about religion, it's some like wild YouTube thing. Like, have you seen this? And I like watch five minutes of it. I'm like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. And they think it's gospel truth. So the more stuff we can get on YouTube, I think the better. Yeah. I'm sorry if any of my coworkers are listening and talk to me (laughs) about YouTube. (laughs) Well, Jordan, so, so dude, this is part of the reason why I wrote on the authorial analogy as well is that I work in campus ministry. So yeah, I could, some mm-hmm. of you guys didn't understand any of the crazy stuff I was saying, but I, I try to translate this down to college students as well and drag them up. Yeah. But every day they say, Hey, what if we're living in a computer simulation? Hey, what if we, every, it's mm-hmm. always simulation and people, I tell my professors here and they kind of laugh and I go, no, I'm writing you a paper on simula- simulation hypothesis. I have to, for my, the sake of my students I work with. So that's another crazy thing. You say, Hey, we're living in a, and uh, a novel, not a computer simulation. Yeah. Well, what do you mean by that? Now, here we go. I sucked you into some theology and you're going to get a whole mess, yeah. a whole face full of reformed theology. Here we go. Well, man, everybody's been listening. This has been really fun. I think you're obviously a good interview. Um, you, you handle yourself well and, and, you've, and you know your stuff and you've written on some really interesting areas. So I'm excited to see what happens for you in the future. What What's, you know, PhD program you end up at and all, all that jazz. Um, eventually I'll be buying your books and reading them because uh, you'll probably be way smarter than I'll ever be. But um, yeah, so everybody's been listening. Check check out the stuff. Uh, he's got he's on Twitter. He's on Facebook. He's better at Facebook than I am. I am terrible at Facebook. I'm like lucky to figure my way out. I'm I'm geriatric millennial or something like that. I think that's the cool terminology. Oh, whatever it is. Anyway. Now that I say that, that sounds really dumb. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I can't be that, but that's irrelevant. Anyway, everybody's been listening. Thanks for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.